Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jay Rosen returns from a lengthy holiday assignment to rejoin Tom for This Week in FCPA, the Holmes Found Guilty Edition. Some of the stories and podcasts we look at this week include Elizabeth Holmes is Found Guilty, why 2022 will be a critical year in ESG reporting, what are some of the top DNO stories from 2021, Airbnb is spanked over <clears throat> sanctions involving Cuba. Morgan Stanley is fined over $60 million for a data breach. China's new ABC guidelines. Let's focus on the G in ESG. What are key areas for board oversight in 2022? Audrey Harris joins AMI and Broadcat is sold. All this and more on This Week in FCPA. Are you interested in the history of insider trading? You are. Take a listen to one of the latest additions to the Compliance Podcast Network, Classroom Insider, where Professor Karen Woody interviews students in her insider trading class. It's a fascinating way to learn about this interesting topic. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to This Week in FCPA, episode 284 for the week ending January 7, 2022, the Holmes Found Guilty edition. Joined as always, well, perhaps not always, but now by Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen has returned from a lengthy holiday assignment to join back up to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories in this, the Holmes Found Guilty edition. Jay, it looks like you survived the holidays, but it's not clear uh, how your mental health is. So what's going on? Well, we'll have to see what uh, comes out in the next 30 to 45 minutes. But I want to thank you for holding down the fort while I was on vacation assignment. And uh, as you were just saying in the green room, happy to be back for a new year of this week at FCPA. So uh, let's talk about the big story. What, what's on our minds? So, Jay, I think uh, perhaps the biggest story in a lot of worlds this week was the um, guilty verdict against Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, there was a several-month trial. The jury uh, deliberated for over a week. She was found guilty on four count, four of 11 counts of defrauding investors. Uh, we've linked to several different stories in the show notes to give you a different flavor. Uh, summary of the verdict from the Wall Street Journal. What does it mean for Silicon Valley and the New York Times? What about the victims? Uh, Bloomberg reports on uh, the persons, not the investors. Uh, will Elizabeth Holmes serve any time, uh, as reported in Fortune? 
and um, Francine McKenna has weighed in, of course, on the auditor perspective. So lots of different uh, ways to shake it and bake it. But, Jay, from a basic compliance and ethics perspective, I can't think of a better case that emphasizes, uh, in a really a textbook manner, culture and how culture starts at the top. And uh, whether or not Elizabeth Holmes was an egomaniac, whether she was a master manipulator, whether she fell under the spell of Svengali, Sonny Balwani, whether she was an abused woman, uh, really none of those matter in terms of the corporate culture because the corporate culture was what she said it to be. And she said it to be a fraudulent, secretive, opaque, uh, company so that no one could see into the organization and the fraud that she was perpetrating. Uh, there are lots of different lessons in this case from my perspective for the compliance professional, but that, that may be the biggest lesson, Jay, is I, I sit back and reflect. And this didn't happen in a vacuum. This was not a person who I think started out to be a fraudster. Um, and there were the forms of corporate governance around her, meaning there was a board of directors that was A-listed, as you could get, Henry Kissinger, um, George Schultz, uh, Jim Mattis, uh, Secretary of Defense under Trump, and a host of other very prominent individuals. And they completely, totally, and utterly failed uh, to oversee um, homes, Sonny Belwani and, and Theranos in any meaningful way. So I know you talk a lot about culture, um, and I could even maybe tie this to the Lisa Monaco, DAG Lisa Monaco's October uh, 2021 speech where she talked about uh, FCPA enforcement, but Jay, she talked about it in the context of corporate culture. And it was corporate culture around compliance. It was corporate culture around recidivism. It was corporate culture around the way you do investigations. It was corporate culture around whether or not you're going to be assessed uh, or, or uh, ordered to have a monitor. So I was um, really struck by just how basic a cultural failure this was. You and I could go probably into the weeds for days around the compliance failures, but uh, maybe what were some of your thoughts? I, I can't remember if you played in the Silicon Valley uh, market or not when you were an investment banker. I know uh, you've talked to lots of, of money folks out there, but is that was that ever a part of kind of the, the Jay Rosen oeuvre? You know, that's a great point, Jay. And I think you were at the Converge, uh, one of the Converge events, the last live one. He actually spoke and he talked about his experiences 
And, uh, you're, uh, you know, he was a 20-something when this happened. Uh, he may not have been, even been 25. And you're absolutely right. He had the institutional fortitude. Well, let's give a shout-out to John Carreyu, uh Wall Street Journal reporter who broke this story, later wrote uh, the book Bad, Bad Blood. And it really, I think, Jay, uh, emphasized to me another key development from 2021, which was found in the Biden administration's strategy for countering corruption, which is the press. And they specifically called out the press for bringing forward whistleblowing information, whether it's in the context of the Panama Papers or in the context of, of John Kerry breaking uh, the Theranos story. Uh, I've looked at this from the due diligence perspective. I had a great podcast with Brandon Daniels at Exeger about uh, investment due diligence and different ways to think about due diligence uh, that you can you can do. Like I said, lots of lessons learned, lots we could slice and dice. But um, to me, that's really the biggest story, certainly of, of last week and, and maybe of, of the year, certainly the biggest story of the year so far. Uh, so, Jay, uh, maybe moving on, um, what does Mike Monroe uh, and his colleague think about 2022 as uh, a year for ESG reporting? Well, much has occurred in the world of ESG over the past few years, and most would agree that the momentum behind sustainability reporting is increasing. Significantly, several events from late 2020 throughout 2021 have brought ESG to a point of no return. And Mike and Guido believe that 2022 appears to be the year where this will all change, with certain ESG reporting being made mandatory per regulations. And the process has begun for the adoption of specific and audible sustainability standards. During 2022, affected companies will need to take immediate steps to ensure required information will be timely, accurate, and readily available. Here are some significant ESG developments to expect in the coming year. SEC required reporting on ESG. Throughout 2021, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission proposed rules for mandatory reporting related to several key areas of ESG, including climate change, human capital management, board diversity, and cyberspace risk governance. However, these proposals resulted in a bit of a firestorm, with important issues being intensely debated regarding how the SEC's jurisdiction for such mandates and how the concept of materiality would be treated. The outcome of these debates and final decisions made which could include litigation, should most definitely have a material impact on any future SEC ESG-related disclosure requirements. Now taking a look at the ESU, their ESG-required reporting. Also in April of last year, the EU, rather the EC, the European Commission, adopted a proposal for a Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, CSRD, to include specific European sustainability reporting standards And these standards, once adopted by member countries, could be applicable to all undertakings within the EU. Next, the IFRS sustainability standards in early 2021 during the COP26 climate conference, Internal Financial Reporting Standards Foundation announced the creation of an International Sustainability Standards Board. With IFRS accounting standards adopted by more than 140 counties, rather countries, New ESG reporting standards, some of which will likely be communicated in 2022, could have an enormous impact on companies. 
and other ESG developments expected in the coming year. Other important ESG-related changes already announced for this year include the transition of the new GRI universal and sector standards, the Value Reporting Foundation and International Integrated Reporting Council to combine with IFRS Foundation and a new government-led organization for economic cooperation and development. This is a significant effort has been being expended on reporting frameworks with definitive changes scheduled for this year. We are starting to see convergence and consolidation of all standards, but at the same time, major organizations and government agencies are pursuing their agendas independently. It still remains to be seen what the ultimate regulatory framework and reporting requirements will be, or whether there will be more than one framework companies will need to adhere to. However, what's clear is that companies around the world must stay closely abreast of these important 2022 ESG reporting developments and as early as possible take thoughtful steps to make to make sure that the company is in the best position to respond in a well thought out and organized manner. Tom, what are some of the top DNO stories from 2021? Well, Jay, our good friend Kevin LaCroix and uh, fellow Michigan law grad has given us uh, top 10 DNO stories from 2021. And I'm going to run through these uh, pretty quickly, but uh, securities filings declined overall. SPAC activity and SPAC litigation increased. Number three, COVID-related infra- uh, litigation increased. Number four, the pandemic-related effects are still roiling the economy. Number five, plaintiffs' lawyers continue to file cybersecurity-related DNO claims, uh, although they have not. They've had mixed success. Six, board diversity uh, concerns tri- trigger legislation, regulation, and litigation, the holy trifecta. Seven, DNO litigation arising out of sexual misconduct or hostile workplaces continues to be filed, and I think this one will be uh, bigger indeed going forward. Uh, Caremark continues to expand for the compliance realm. Uh, DNO risks are not simply increasing in the United States, but literally on a worldwide basis, and DNO insurance remains a hard market, meaning not a lot of problems. Pro- uh, Price flexibility and uh, coverage may be difficult to get if you've had uh, other claims. So really interesting uh, year in DSD and O insurance. Matt, Kelly, and I have focused on SPAC-related litigation uh, and DNO uh, uh, DNO claims against not only SPACs but ransomware as well. So I think we're going to continue to see this. And, Jay, I know you and other podcasts have talked about Activision and how the facts of that case were so bad that it may raise hostile work environments to uh, a risk that boards now need to, to be more involved with. Typically, before that was sort of seen as an HR function, but when you have systemic hostile work environments and a CEO who tolerates the kind of uh, sexual harassment and uh, illicit behavior he did at that company, uh, you may have a bigger problem and that may raise up to the directors and officers level. So we're going to continue to watch that. It's it's tangential to compliance, but it's interesting to see these tangential issues kind of roil back, R-O-I-L back, and how they impact uh, really, I think, important issues, particularly for boards of directors. Uh, Jay, um, I was somewhat surprised to see Airbnb spanked over Cuba. What happened? 
Well, uh, this comes to us from the Wall Street Journal Risk Compliance Journal from Menke Sun. And Airbnb settles with the U.S. on alleged violations of Cuba sanctions. The payment subsidiary of vacation rental company Airbnb has agreed to settle allegations that violated U.S. sanctions against Cuba, the Treasury Department said this week. Airbnb Payments, Inc. allegedly processed payments associated with the guests traveling to Cuba for reasons outside of categories authorized by the U.S. government and failed to keep certain required records for Cuba-related transactions. This is according to the Treasury Office of Foreign Asset Control, which implements and enforces U.S. sanctions. Airbnb Payments has agreed to remit more than $91,000 as part of the settlement. The Trump administration increased economic pressure on Cuba, reversing a shift under President Obama to a more open stance towards the nation that led to an increase of travel between the two countries. Under President Biden, the U.S. continues to have broad sanctions on Cuba. San Francisco-based Airbnb disclosed in its initial public offering documents in 2020 that it had made voluntary disclosures to the Treasury about its completed compliance efforts in certain user activities on its platform that may have been at odds with the requirements expressed under U.S. sanctions law. The company said at this time it had conducted an internal review, including of its business in Cuba, which had submitted the results to OFAC that September. Airbnb launched its Cuba business in 2015, following regulatory changes announced by the U.S. government three months earlier, but the company failed to fully address the complexities of an operating Cuban-related sanctions program for their travel services. OFAC said in an agreement, OFAC also alleged that the rapid growth of Airbnb services in Cuba outpaced its ability to manage sanctions-related risks through its technology. Finally, OFAC acknowledged that the violations were discovered after Airbnb's payments proactively initiated a comprehensive review of its sanctions program, according to an agreement. Airbnb payments also implemented remedial measures to strengthen its sanctions compliance program and fully cooperated with OFAC, according to the agreement. So, Tom, on to another corporate case. What is the story on Morgan Stanley's fine for their data breach? We'll be right back with more stories on This Week in FCPA after this message from our sponsor. So, Jay, it's actually a settlement of a shareholder action. In October 2020, the OCC, Office of the Comptroller, fined J.P. Morgan $60 billion for a really unusual set of facts, but as basic a uh, failure around data privacy and data protection as you can have. Uh, J.P. Morgan had a wealth management division. It uh, sold that division, and it sold the servers which housed the personal identifiable information. Uh, but it didn't wipe that information before it sold and transferred the servers. The third parties who bought the business unit notified J.P. Morgan, and that led to the original $60 million fine. This fine was for 
uh, not excuse me, fine, but there's a settlement with shareholders to create a pot of money to reimburse shareholders for their loss and cost uh, for rather those uh, uh, stakeholders who had personal identifiable data or information uh, stolen. So uh, it really brings home a point that that Jay that I don't think we can stress enough that uh, if you sell hardware, uh, you better strip it. And I don't know how many computers you've had to send to the computer heaven in the sky, but if you do that, you better strip the data. And there are companies that will do that for you. And yes, it costs a little bit, but if you don't do so, you've just put your data out literally to the universe. So if you take that into the business context, uh, it costs J.P. Morgan a $60 million fine and now a $60 million settlement. Um, that's a pretty expensive lesson. So um, use some basic uh, sanitary uh, sanitization, just as you would uh, for your personal computer and your personal data. If you sell uh, servers or business units with personal identifiable information, uh, make sure you have the right to transfer that data or uh, strip it out. So... Um, Unfortunately, a pretty ex- expensive lesson. Jay, we had some new anti-corruption guidelines out of China. What did you see in those? Thanks, Tom. This comes to us from the FCPA blog by uh, uh, an attorney, Andrew Reeves, and his colleague, Ron Quinn Huang. Three things to know about China's new anti-bribery guideline. China's Central Commission for Discipline Inspection, known as the CCDI, recently released a new anti-bribery guideline that sets out the Chinese government's desire to crack down on individuals and corporate committing bribery within China. There are three key takeaways about the risk of blacklisting carbon copy prosecution in China and Chinese authorities having a stricter approach to mitigation and confiscation. In terms of risk risk blacklisting, The guidelines headline policy is that companies and individuals may be blacklisted if they are found to have paid bribes in China. Once blacklisted, a company or individual would be prevented from conducting business in China, but the guideline does not yet specifically specify a time period for the blacklisting, but the CCDI is preparing detailed provisions regarding the system. Number two, carbon copy prosecution in China. The guideline also raises the potential for carbon copy prosecution if a company enters into a settlement with an overseas authority about bribery allegations in China. Resolving bribery issues through a settlement is increasingly common, with many jurisdictions having bought the deferred, brought the deferred prosecution agreements or similar settlement mechanisms. Companies should be aware that any admission made regarding allegations of bribery in China or an other authority, for example, U.S. or U.K., could lead to them being blacklisted and prosecuted within China. And finally, stricter approach towards mitigation and confiscation. The guideline states that authorities will be stricter in giving credit for mitigating circumstances, moving away from the current approach in which mitigation will usually be applied if the bribe payer actively cooperates. The guidance also provides that the property obtained through bribery bribery will be recovered and other advantages derived from bribery, such as access to positions, will be canceled or revoked. These new guidelines represent a more aggressive approach by China in targeting those who pay bribes as opposed to the recent recipients of the bribes. And the guideline also emphasizes the need to manage the acute risks that briberies present. 
Failure to manage these risks may lead companies to effectively losing their license to operate in China. So, Tom, we keep hearing about ESG. We're going to hear about the G. What's the big deal about the G today? So this comes to us from our friend Loris Heim over at PracticalESG.com, Jay. And he talks about uh, human rights due diligence. That's something we've touched upon uh, uh, Gwen Hassan now has a podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, Hidden Traffic, uh, where she talks about uh, modern slavery and uh, human rights or human trafficking. So human rights due diligence is something that uh, U.S. companies are becoming more aware of and more involved in. And indeed, the U.S. Congress just passed the uh, U- Uger Act. I may have pictured that, but uh, prevents companies from using uh, slave labor out of China and uh, what Lawrence says is this was something companies should have been doing, but it's become even more important now. And if we look at the UK Modern Slavery Act and other legislation out of the EU, I think uh, very uh, more forward thinking there in terms of regulation, that this needs to go up to the board level. And we talked about, uh, obviously, boards when we, we visited about Kevin LaCroix's uh, piece in the DNO diary. But here, Lawrence says that boards need to get on board with this, and they need to start assessing the risk and making sure that their organizations are uh, properly engaged in human, human rights due diligence. And that, as we saw Caremark expand to include compliance he sees this as a key issue for boards going forward, and it, I think it, it really speaks to a broader trend, Jay, that we'll see more ESG, ESG issues uh, going up to the board and more board oversight of ESG as it becomes more important. But he really advocates for more corporate governance over human rights due diligence, Jay. Uh, let me just turn the, uh, the key a quarter turn, Jay, and ask you, what are some of the key areas for board oversight in 2022, at least that Holly Gregory sees? Thanks, Tom. This comes to us from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. And Holly takes a look at key focus areas for 2022 in board oversight. Boards function in a complex and dynamic business setting in which stakeholder expectations and demands for board attention are expanding. The challenges of operating through COVID-19 pandemic in an uncertain environment continue to be felt as companies anticipate new post-pandemic normal. Companies face pressure on multiple fronts, including resistance to returning to in-person work in a highly competitive talent market, supply chain bottlenecks and inflation, the, uh, the potential for a global and national economic slowdown, and increasing risk of cyber attacks, unusual climate events, and regulatory action in, in all atmospheres are at a heightened scrutiny of board oversight. Ensuring that directors are well positioned to satisfy this oversight responsibility requires periodic assessment of board agenda priorities and the related structures, process, and controls that are in place to ensure the board is well informed on a timely basis of matters that are critical. The post summarizes directors' duty of oversight and highlights issues that are likely to require significant board attention in the coming year. 
First of all, the duty of oversight. As we said above, the board is responsible under state corporate law for direction and management of the company. It typically delegates significant authority to the CEO and senior management to run the business. And once the board has delegated its authority, its primary responsibility is to oversee management's performance. In terms of strategy and risk, the board should remain focused on providing guidance and oversight, with the majority of its time reserved for discussing corporate strategy and assessing the quality of management's performance, including their focus on business continuity, opportunities, and risk. Corporate purpose and ESG matters in an environment of rising expectations about the role of companies in society, boards should remain focused on ensuring that the company innovates in providing goods and services in a way that meets fair expectations of a range of shareholders. Human capital and workforce issues. The COVID-19 pandemic, together with the shift to knowledge-based economy, highlights the value of human capital and triggered changes in business needs, work preferences, the market for human capital, and associated risks. Human capital management issues are critical to corporate culture and are a key area for board oversight. Shareholder engagement and activism. The onus is on boards and senior executives teams to inform and engage with stakeholders and shareholders about corporate purpose and strategy, key board decisions, and the rationales for those decisions. Engagement provides an opportunity to gain insight into shareholder viewpoints, which can be valuable in formulating an appropriate strategy going forward. Crisis management. Every board is likely to face a crisis that requires it to become more actively engaged in overseeing management's response or even in developing and undertaking the response itself. To prepare the company to react quickly with assurance in a a crisis-driven external internal events, the board and management should consider sources of potential crises and develop plans to address them. And finally, board management relationship and board culture. While the board monitors management's performance and provides direction, it also has to act as a sounding board for management to test and hone ideas and as a resource for expertise. Strong board management relationships require a constructive, respectful give and take, a recognition of the distinction between board and management roles, and the transparency grounded in the expectation that management will deliver bad news promptly. The board needs to develop a strong working relationship with the CEO and other members of the team, and at the same time be able to provide constructive guidance and criticism. Tom, what is news about the latest merger in our little ethics and compliance part of the world? Unfortunately, now it's no longer the latest. Uh, We had one announced today. But uh, I want to talk to you about Broadcat. And Ricardo Pelafon, one of the true characters in our field, um, sold Broadcat. I think this really surprised everyone. Uh, Ricardo, uh, in addition to being one of the Biggest characters, he has some of the greatest products using a behavioralist approach for uh, compliance communication and training and really has been on the cutting edge in many ways of utilizing uh, visuals, then moving to videos and audios and other uh, media to help companies create uh, memorable, engaging, and effective compliance. Ricardo is card-carrying member of the bar, and so he brings a lawyer's perspective to training, but he certainly doesn't give you a lawyer giving you training. 
anybody who's been to a conference has seen him, heard him, or knows of him. And uh, the sale itself was to an outfit called FCP, or Featherweight Capital Partners, an Austin-based um, private equity firm. I believe they have uh, an additional healthcare hotline provider, so they may be building up a little portfolio of compliance companies. And uh, perhaps most interestingly, uh, the managing partner of Featherweight Capital, Alex Klingelberger, is actually taking over uh, or joining Broadcat as the CEO. So it's going to be interesting to see him in our space, in the compliance world. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, hopefully, Ricardo will continue to be a part of Broadcat, and I hope he continues to be part of the overall uh, compliance community. Uh, Jay, it's not in the show notes, but I mentioned uh, we had another announcement of, of a sale today. True, a true Learning uh, has been sold. Uh, so I, as I said, I can no longer say or I can't say Broadcat is uh, the latest sale in the compliance uh, space. But Jay, uh, I would really like uh, maybe to get your views on the following, which is uh, we, we are now seeing more private equity money moving into the compliance space. And when I see private equity go into a space, it tells me they believe there's opportunity for growth and uh, significant growth because typically a private equity uh, firm will take a position and uh, to flip or spin out a company in three to five years with some multiple of uh, profitability on the sales price. So is there anything you see to private equity engaging more in the compliance product space that that really gives you pause or, or even encourages you going forward? Well, it's a great question, Tom. And, you know, to echo your thoughts about private equity, they're not in there just because they're good Samaritans. Uh, they want to flip the co- company in 18 to 36 months and get anywhere from a 2 to 5x return. So my only initial thought on this might be is what we've reported on weekly and for the past year is there's so much more happening within our space in terms of ESG and other reporting functions. So if private equity has sniffed out that these reporting functions are going to be big and they're going to really be a, a a source of income, that might be one reason why they're piling in. And it's, you know, if we go back to GDPR, it's almost two years ago and we still really don't see that major effect. So Sometimes there is a lag on this, but I think that they're in, that they know that there's going to be more automation, there's going to be more need for verification, so um, maybe there's an upside there for consolidation. Lots of shuns on my part. So Jay, big news out of AMI. You weren't sold, but I thought it was pretty significant. Tell us about it. I am happy to let everyone know that uh, Audrey Harris has joined Affiliated Monitors, and this is as of Wednesday, January 5th this year. Audrey has joined us as a managing director in global anti-corruption, compliance, ethics, and non-financial risk. And she brings her experience as a big law partner and co-chair of a global practice, as well as practical know-how from herself being a chief compliance officer. Affiliated Monitors was pleased to bring Audrey onto the team, said Vin DiCiani, the founder and president. Her knowledge and experience in white-collar and global matters greatly augments AMI's capabilities in providing first-class independent monitoring and compliance and ethics services. 
In addition, the perspective drawn from her work as a chief compliance officer adds great depth to the affiliated monitor's growing team. With a renewed focus on independent monitoring and compliance programs by DOJ, Audrey is the right person to help companies and their counsel in need of services that AMI provides. Audrey will be based in the Denver area, increasing AMI's presence in the Midwest, and she will also maintain a significant relationship uh, out of her past uh, work at D.C. and international levels. About her new role, Audrey said she's excited to really focus on helping companies identify and realize the compliance and value add for stakeholders and businesses. She continued that there's never been a better time for positive business impact via proactive, preventative, and monitoring compliance strategies across global non-financial risk subjects, including from corruption and competition to ethics, workplace, culture, ESG again, and certainly there's never been a better fit for purpose multidisciplinary team to bring this impact than the growing team at AMI. With backgrounds from government law firms, in-house accounting, compliance, academia, and even former screenwriters like me, we bring 18 years of experience that Affiliated Monitors is uniquely positioned to bring value via independent monitoring ships, monitorships. And uh, one of the things I would add is by having Audrey join the team, I feel it's really significant that we're bringing somebody on who has practical CCO perspective and she can understand how monitorships work. And this knowledge will allow her to use her background to reach and serve a new audience for AMI's independent integrity and compliance solutions. So, Tom, that's the news for the week. What do we have for podcasts? Well, Jay, if you want to have some fun, check out uh, Megan Doherty and myself. We're exploring the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. We're up to episode three, where we look at the original Iron Man, uh, something everyone should go back and watch. Uh, it really was a lot of fun. I uh, started a new month on The Compliance Life, and I had Valerie Charles. Valerie has one of the most interesting journeys in compliance, Jay, because not only has she been in-house legal, not only has she been a CCO, uh, but she went into the tech world, and she's one of the few people uh, who went into the tech world from the CCO chair. She's back out now in consulting at Stone Turn, but, uh, and uh, it was really a fascinating. She's from a little town in Tennessee and uh, was a dancer and danced in New York, in Los Angeles, and literally in London as well. So it was a really interesting uh, visit with Valerie. So check out The Compliance Life. Karen Woody has started her own podcast called Classroom Insider. Karen has gone in a very different direction, Jay, in her podcast. She has interviewed her students from her insider trading class, and each one takes a different topic. Uh, She's the first person I know, professor I know, to interview students for their podcast. So it's uh, really great. And we're looking forward to uh, some more episodes coming out this year. Uh, your colleague, Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, is back with a delicious episode in Lies, Spies, and Corporate Crimes, the Wirecard Saga. Uh, she, she took a look at um, uh, the kind of Christmas season for those in the clink and some of the legal issues and continued fallout from Wirecard. That posted... Uh, yesterday, Jay, and then next week she's going to have another episode up. So uh, it's it's literally the most popular international podcast 
in the Compliance Podcast Network. And today I got a tweet from someone saying, please pass this tweet along to Mikhail. So uh, that's the kind of coverage and uh, stroke she has literally across the globe. And Jay, I am also pleased that since it's January, I'm doing my famous 20, uh, excuse me, 31 days to a more effective compliance program. Wait, did you just take take away two days from January and give no, them the No, I took away too many, but I got 31 days and 31 days to a more effective compliance program. And we're up to day six. Uh, each episode is relatively short, six to eight minutes. One thing you can do to, in uh, one general topic, but three key takeaways that allow you to, at a little to no cost, enhance your compliance program going forward. So check out 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. It's updated, of course, because I am updating uh, the Bible of Compliance, which, of course, is the Compliance Handbook. My manuscript goes in at the end of the month to LexisNexis, so we'll have a third edition out in June. Uh, But check out 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, uh, also on the Compliance Podcast Network. Jay, you want to take us on home? So, yes, as you know, Tom Fox is the voice of compliance. He can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And as always, I'm Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor. And you can reach me at the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA. Episode 284, wow, it's a big number, for the week ending January 7th, 2022, the Holmes Found Guilty Edition. We'd like to thank you for sharing some of your week or weekend with us, and we look forward to speaking with you next week when we take a look at This Week and FCPA. Take care. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. As I mentioned, I'm doing 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program please check out the episode which posts each day at noon on the Compliance Podcast Network, Spotify, iTunes, JD Supra, or whichever platform you listen to for your podcast. Also check out Classroom Insiders, Karen Woody's new podcast on the history of insider trading. Finally, the last week of January, I will premiere my podcast series, The Trial of the Century, The Enron Trial, where with former business columnist from the Houston Chronicle, Lauren Steffi, we reflect back on the Enron trial. Check out these shows and many more on the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.